Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Thank you especially for coming out on this, on this cold, this rainy morning. And thank, thank you to all you who are joining with us by our live streaming today. It is wonderful to have you with us as well. Today, before I begin my sermon and before I read our scripture reading, I want to take just a moment to address the events of this last week. It's part of my duty, I believe, to, to speak some things that are not only on my heart, but I believe also on the hearts of many of you, and I believe also resonate with the Word of God in times like this. Surely the events of this past week have cast away any illusion that 2021 is going to just be an easy year. As a matter of fact, I'm reminded of what our Lord said to his disciples in the 16th chapter of John in the 33rd verse. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. No matter who incites it or who carries it out or the motives behind it, Violence, especially politically motivated violence, undermines the witness of the church and it scandalizes the efforts and good for which we toil. Integrity demands that we rebuke the rioting of the last seven months, including the events of this past week. The rebuke of these acts of vandalism, of violence and mayhem must be clear and unequivocal. The Apostle Peter said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. But it's also required, wisdom also requires, that we acknowledge the causal and inciting power of toxic words shouted in anger. All that to say, words matter. And this is why the Apostle James said this. He said, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who are in heaven, who is in heaven. Excuse me. We must all ask ourselves how that explicit command to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, how each one, how that applies to each one of us. 
How does it apply to the way we speak? How does it apply to what we do? How does it apply to how we think? It should make us also examine ourselves and ask, so who are my enemies and why do I consider them so? The Apostle Paul begged us to remember who our true enemy is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I bring all of this up because the divisions played out on the news this week are not alien to our own congregation. We have people who are passionate about their political beliefs on both sides of the aisle, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, others in between. For my own part, in this time of division, I've decided to listen better, to say less and pray more. And with a group of other clergy downtown, I'm committed to work for the peace in this city and especially in our church, by calling for kingdom unity over partisan toxicity. Now you may have noticed a theme running through the liturgy this morning. It's the theme of baptism. That's because today is the day that we remember the baptism of the Lord, that day when he was baptized by John in the Jordan. But it's also a day to zero in on our baptism on our identity in Christ, because baptism is all about our identity in Christ. Beloved, our identity is not defined by the record of our past, by our accomplishments, by our party affiliation, or by any other metric on earth. Our identity rests in Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace, and he is the one who will bring justice to the nations and hope to the discouraged. You know, the martyrs of the early church refused to worship the Roman emperor as a god and gave their lives in witness to the gospel. Our Scottish Presbyterian and Covenanter ancestors gave their lives to stand up for the truth that Jesus Christ, not the king of England, not the king of Scotland, is the head of the church. From Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to believers in Beijing, Christians have stood and died upon the principle that no person, no party, no oath, no government supersedes our devotion, loyalty, and obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, there was a famous story about a woman who asked Benjamin Franklin what kind of government the new constitutional convention had produced. Franklin answered, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Jesus Christ has given us a church and a mission to make disciples who love Jesus Christ, who love one another, and who love our neighbors, who love this city. The people of God, the disciples of Jesus Christ, were made for a moment such as this. And he has given us a mission. He has given us a church if we can keep it. Again, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Last Wednesday, 
when I first heard about the rioting, about the events in Washington, D.C., Alex Clary, Alex Solorio, our youth minister and university minister, respectively, we were getting ready to record a podcast in my office. And as we were getting ready to do that, Alex pulled up the news on his iPad and we saw what was going on on in Washington. And so rather than turn on the microphones and start recording, we decided it was more important to come in here and pray for a while. And that's what we did. We came in here and we prayed probably for about an hour or so. And as we were praying, at one point I looked up and I saw this window. Same one that we see every Sunday. It has been there for, for I guess, since 1910 when they built this building. But it is there as a constant reminder of Christ's victory. The ascension window depicts his ascension into heaven. That time when he was enthroned with God the Father. That time when he took his place and all authority in heaven and on earth was shown to have been put into him. And it reminded me that no matter what happens in this world, not only is our God sovereign and, as, and is he in control, but that he has a mission for his church. That mission is not suspended. And the rules that govern us, the love, of lo- the love of God, the love of neighbor, the love of one another is not suspended either. We are called to be his people in this place, declaring his kingdom just as he did. He never said it would be easy. Rather, he said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you don't think about anything else this morning, think about this window, think about the truth of it, the truth behind it, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the victory of Jesus Christ, as our guide, as our shield, as our great reward that will carry us through everything that each successive 24-hour news cycle has to throw at us. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, amidst the changing words of our generation, speak to us your eternal word that does not change. As we get so sucked in by the events of our world, help us to remember, oh, Lord, that you are God and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. You have told us, to expect trouble. You've told us to expect tribulation. You have told us, O Lord, that if the world hated you, surely it will hate us as well. Lord, prepare us and encourage us, inspire us and empower us to do the things that you've called us to do, trusting in you 100%. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to shift gears, and we're going to talk about Jesus for a little while. This year, in 2021, we're going to be celebrating our 175th anniversary as First Presbyterian Church, our 175 years of ministry here in San Antonio, Texas. And to do and to celebrate that ministry, we're going to be using the 
Gospel of Mark as our guide. And why are we going to do that? Because in the story of Jesus, in his story, we find the origins of our own story. Not only as a church, but as the children of God. Now, last week, we looked at the beginning of Mark's gospel, and we looked at John the Baptist's mission to prepare the way of the Lord into the wilderness. And we connected the dots, we connected the mission of John to the mission of this church, both in the wilderness of John and of his time, to the wilderness of our church and its founding, to the wilderness of today. And today we're going to continue our study of Mark. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it's printed in your bulletin, if you would read along with me as I read aloud. But today we're going to be talking about the baptism of Jesus. Mark writes this, he says, In those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. I remember several years ago, I was asked to baptize four-year-old Madison Bullard and her baby brother, Jack. And as we were walking from my office toward the sanctuary, a lady walking down the hall commented, on little four-year-old Madison's dress. She said, oh, what a pretty dress. And Madison, you could tell, was flattered, but also encouraged and maybe even expected it a little bit. But Madison spoke right up in response to her and she said, thank you. Me and my brother Jack, we're going to be baptized. Baptized. I've never forgotten how that was sounded. Mark begins his gospel with the baptism of Jesus. Why? Because in the baptism of Jesus, we not only learn something about the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, we also learn what it means for each of us, for you and me, to be a child of God. Let's take a closer look. Two things happen in the baptism of Jesus. First, Mark tells us that Jesus came up from Nazareth to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. John was, we are told, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. What John was doing was extending to people the opportunity to be cleansed, to be clean, to come clean before God and to change their ways. He was offering them a spiritual way to deal with their guilt. And Mark says that people were coming from Jerusalem and all over Judea to be baptized by John. And John became very popular in a sense. I mean, after all, guilt is pervasive and it's real and it's crippling and it's consuming. And even people who maybe don't consider themselves really wanting to be any better still want to get rid of their guilt. They want to deal with it. 
I mean, we have so many toxic habits, so many distractions, so many temptations and addictions. We carry so much guilt and shame. So we feel so much pressure that at some point, everybody feels like they need some relief. Now, I am sure that there were many people who came to John with sincere confession and humility before God. But I am equally sure that there were also people who came because John was the newest celebrity self-help guru in town. They believed that he had an easy way to patch things up with God. They thought that John could not only relieve them of their guilt, but with that baptism therapy, they might even be able to get a get out of free, a get out of hell free card. Now that might explain the crowds, many of whom came because they seriously wanted to be cleansed of their sins. They wanted that, that cleansing to be right with God. But why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come to be baptized? Why did the sinless son of God need to be baptized for the repentance of sins? Was Jesus not blameless? The book of Hebrews says that he was like us in every way, yet without sin. He had no guilt. He was in no danger of hell. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, again, two reasons. First, because everything Jesus would ask his disciples to go through, he went through himself. And we're going to go into more depth about that next week. But from his baptism, to his temptations, to his conflicts, to his compassion, to his devotion, his suffering, and even his death on the cross, Jesus went first. As the book of Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Jesus was not baptized because he needed repentance. Jesus was baptized because we need repentance. And he did it first to show us what it looked like. Second, Jesus was baptized because Jesus understood that repentance is not just about forgiveness for our sins. It's not just about getting rid of our guilt or about giving up the vices and lusts that we seem so desperately to crave. Repentance is so much better than that. Repentance is also about giving ourselves over to God. The word repentance literally means to change one's heart, to change one's mind, to change one's way. Repentance is not just about turning away from sin, it's also about turning toward God. It's about turning toward Him. It's about taking God seriously. It's about betting our lives on Him and putting Him in control of the direction of our lives. Unfortunately, a lot of people have a half-baked understanding of repentance. When most people hear the word repent, they think that repentance means simply to regret the bad things that you've done, to punish yourself, to make amends, to fix whatever you broke so that you won't end up in hell. Or so you won't end up in the hell of broken relationships. But that's missing the best part. The best part of repentance is that in turning your back on sin, 
you're also turning toward the face of God. Repentance is about letting it all go to satisfy our hunger and thirst with the glory of God. And Jesus knew beyond all doubt that nothing will ever satisfy us. Nothing will ever lift us up. Nothing will ever give us more joy than giving ourselves over, humbling ourselves before God. So another way to say that is Jesus wasn't baptized because he needed it. Jesus was baptized because he wanted it. He wanted to have that wonderful, powerful, filling relationship with God. He lacked nothing in his relationship with God, but oh, but what a joy to be in that relationship. Jesus' baptism was a sign for everyone to see that he was totally surrendered, totally sold out to his Father's will. It is the expression of not my will, but thy will be done. And so then Mark wrote, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn, apart, being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The sky was torn open, says Mark. The word Mark used was schizo, split, like schism or schizophrenia, like a cloth being torn asunder. It's the same word that the gospels use when they declare that, the, that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The, t- the curtain before the Holy of Holies was split in two. And can you imagine the sound, the noise when the very air split. It was like thunder. It was like a sonic boom. But no thunder, no sonic boom could compare to the voice of God. And God said, this is my son. Here's my boy. I am proud of him. He is special. He's like no other. He is going to do glorious and powerful things. He is going to save the world. And what we see in the baptism of Jesus is that he was not just simply cleansed in baptism. He was claimed in baptism. Now, in the first words of his gospel, Mark declares that Jesus was the son of God. But I think that one thing that makes Mark's gospel a little different from the other three gospels is that the other gospels put the emphasis more on Jesus's origins. Jesus is the son of God because of where he came from, his virgin birth, his eternal nature. But in Mark's gospel, what marks Jesus as the son of God is not where he came from, but where he is going. It's all about his faithfulness to his mission, which culminates in the cross. You know, I, I really do believe that Mark knew all about the virgin birth and Jesus' biological kinship with the Father. He knew about his lineage and his divinity. But Mark was more focused on Jesus' spiritual kinship with the Father. And Mark zeroes in on Jesus' spiritual sonship. He wants to show us 
that more important than the fact that Jesus was uniquely born is the fact that he is eternally claimed as the son of God by his father. And here in this moment, we see all three members of the Trinity together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is my Son. Here is the Christ, the one who was and is and is to come, Emmanuel, God with us. And here's why this story is so important to us. In this story, we not only learn something about the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, we also learn something about our identity as the children of God. We know that Jesus was the Son of God, but what does that mean for us? As a professor of mine, Dr. Balmer Kelly, said once, he introduced me to a thought-provoking way to read this passage, and indeed the story of Jesus Christ. It's a way that opens up the gospel in a whole new way and points to some real meaning in how, how the stories of Jesus' life relate to your life and to my life as well. Dr. Kelly said this. He said, every word written down about the Christian, uh, excuse me, let me start over. Every word written down about Jesus is a word about the Christian. Every word written down about Jesus is a word about the Christian. In other words, his story becomes our story. And so, if the Son of God was cleansed and claimed by God, a child of God is not only cleansed by God, but claimed by God. When Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, God said, this is my beloved Son, and with him I am well pleased. And I am here to proclaim today that whether you were baptized as a child or as a youth or as an adult, when you were baptized, God claimed you too as his own child. A disciple is not just a broken penitent kneeling before a judge. It's not somebody just executing a program for their master. A disciple is a beloved child embraced by our father. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the letter to the Galatians. He wrote that when the fullness of time had come, God, God sent the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then also an heir through God. The key is that as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers, we are adopted by God. As covenant people, we are adopted by God. He has claimed us as his own children. We are made heirs and real daughters and real sons of God. And so when God said of Jesus, you are my beloved son, he was saying that too of every person who is in Christ. Our identity is in Christ Jesus. As adopted children, we can claim for ourselves everything that Jesus claimed as God's own son. Now, 
please hear me clearly. We do not claim to become Jesus. We do not claim to become Christ's. What that means is that we take up the full rights and privileges of being God's own children. But not only do we gain the legal rights and privileges, we gain a personal relationship. We can even claim to call God Abba. That most personal address, which is translated variously as daddy or versions of it. Nothing better illustrates the limits of our language than our treatment of this word, Abba. Because Abba is a word filled with personal importance. What it means is that he's not just some distant, impersonal force. He's not just the ground of being. He's not just some higher power. He is your Abba. He's your daddy. It is about a relationship that he has with you, defined by his son, Jesus Christ. Being a child of God begins when we begin to understand that the son of God did not just come to save the world. He came to save you. This is personal. Before you ever heard about him, before you were ever born, God the Father claimed you and his son Jesus Christ. He claimed you. He knew your name. He gave you your parents. He knew where you would be born. You were born as a child of destiny. And because of Jesus, God the Father has said, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. And because of Jesus Christ, with you I am well pleased. And then he sealed you with his Holy Spirit. But you know, there's something else we need to hear as well. Not only did the Father claim you as his son, claim Jesus as his son, excuse me. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I know that there's some people in this room today who are thinking, well, that counts me out. I know they're thinking to themselves, well, that's it. I could never be a child of God because I know that he can't be pleased with me. That was true maybe for people back then, or maybe it's true for other people that he's pleased with them, but that can't be true that he's pleased with me. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. When God claimed you, he knew what kind of life you would live. Oh, yes. He knew everything you would do. He knew that of which you would be proud, and he knew that of which you would be ashamed. He knew about the times that you've been hurt and broken and the times when you would stand strong. He knew about the times that you would be kind and about the times that you would be selfish and hurtful. He is well aware of the times you've forsaken him. He's well aware of the times you've blamed him and denied him at the same time. He is well aware that you have preferred to do it on your own, to do it your way, acting, like, like, acting to the world like you didn't need him, doing things your way, not his way. But he also remembers those times when you secretly, desperately prayed for his help. He knows all of that. And still in Christ Jesus, he's claimed you as his child. 
Now, how can we possibly be God's adopted children when we have drifted or bolted so far away from him? Well, think about this. Well, how did Jesus deal with those who had forsaken him? Those who hid and denied him in his moment of greatest suffering. What did he say to those who had abandoned him? What did he say when he found the disciples still cowering in their hiding place? I'll tell you what he said. He stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he showed them his hands and his side. Horrible reminders of what it cost him when they forsook him. And then he said again, John 20, 19 and 21, peace be with you. Peace, not shame. I forgive you. I take you back. Not only that, I am entrusting you with my mission. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. John 20, 21. Jesus was eager to repair the damage that had been done. Eager to forgive. Eager to cleanse, to restore, to recommission. And know this. When he claimed you in baptism, he knew not only who you were then, he also knew who you would be and who you could be. He did not claim you because you are pure and perfect. He claimed you because you needed him and you were made to be his child. And he claimed you to show the power and depth and glory of his mercy and grace. This story tells us that to be a child of God means two things. To acknowledge that we are claimed by God and to give ourselves over to him. Jesus came to John seeking baptism even though he was perfect and sinless. Why? He humbled himself before God and before a crowd of men and women and took on baptism, the baptism of a sinner. Why? To show us that humility is the way to the Father and to show us that God is worthy of our lives. To be a child of God means to humble yourself and acknowledge Jesus Christ as your highest authority and the greatest desire of your life. This is the foundation for discipleship, not only in Mark's gospel, but throughout the scriptures. To be a child of God is not simply to believe that God exists or to be a member of the church or to call yourself religious or Christian or even spiritual. It's to put all your eggs in his basket with enthusiasm. How much of your life have you invested with Jesus? How much of your time, your money, your security, your energy, your happiness? Doesn't matter whether we are criminals or just nominal Christians. If we want to live as the beloved sons and daughters of God, then we have to then we have to begin just as Jesus began. We have to start where he started. We have to humble ourselves before God. Even Jesus, who was perfect and blameless and totally fixed on the Father's will, humbled himself and took on the baptism of a sinner to show us the way to the Father. 
We can do no more or no less. If you have forsaken him, if you've forgotten him, if you've let him down, if you've offended him, then take heart. He is ready to repair and restore. He came to cleanse you and to claim you. People say all the time, well, God loves us just the way we are. And that's true. He does does love us. He loves us exactly where we are. He loves us exactly where he finds us. Here's the key, though. He loves us too much to leave us there. That's why he wants to cleanse and claim you. So I ask you to do this. Seek his face. Ask him. Receive his grace. And know that he has declared you a child of God. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done. And because he has claimed you in Jesus Christ, his son, with whom he is well pleased. Peace be with you. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, the peace that we so need seems so far away. But it's not just the events of our world that unsettle us or that break us or that pull us apart. Lord, it is also the sin in our own hearts. It is our distraction, our loneliness, our our craving for the idols and affections of this world. It is everything else that just distracts us from you. So, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to seek you, to seek first you and your kingdom, to understand that you are of surpassing worth. And, Lord, we just ask that you would would help us to hear your voice saying, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, and in him, in her, I am well pleased because of my son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you now to awaken in each heart our desire for repentance, our desire for you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.